Conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. It has been quite a short time between drinks this time around, and Scott is going to be leading us through the next episode of Antibiotics. So we've got with you Beck, myself, Davor, who is with our daughter Zala, the baby who will likely start crying during this episode, necessitating a sudden exit from Davor. Hi guys, so I'm here for the moment, but might have to have to leave at a moment's notice and then come back at random times. Honestly, father of the year. <laughs> and and Scott, what are you going to be telling us about today? Today we're going to be talking about gram negative infections. Last week we talked about gram positives, and this we'll talk about gram negatives and go through kind of mop up the rest and go through antibiotics as well. Awesome. So, yeah, we're going to start with the bugs and then go to the antibiotics and then we've got some nice cases to tie it all up at the end. Is that right? Yeah. So if you, if stuff's a bit confusing at first, don't worry, we'll go over it a couple of times as we go through the different sections. So it should hopefully start to make a bit more sense by the end. And, and it is, we've recorded it with gram positives first and then gram negatives. So probably will make more sense to you to listen to it in that order as well. Yeah. So just quickly, last week we talked about the gram-positive cocci, which was Staph aureus, coag-negative staphs, streptococci, and enterococci. And we also talked about gram-positive rods. Today we're going to talk about gram-negative bugs and all the rest of them. And just to say, because I don't think I mentioned it last time, bugs is a slang term that ID doctors use a lot to talk about bacteria because we like to imagine them in our head as little insects crawling around. But you can basically just sub in bacteria whenever you hear bugs. Out of interest, do, do, are viruses bugs in, in ID slang? Like if I want to be a cool ID doctor, are people just going to like, you know, look at me weird if I call a fungi a bug? Like what are the rules? Yeah, that's a good, that's actually a really good question. I messaged, I was thinking about this today and <laughs> I messaged. Is that a literature uh, review? I, my literature review was I messaged my friend Elise who didn't answer. So Elise right. McPhail is also responsible for a lot of the structure of these right. slides. So good chance to give her a shout out but yeah she hasn't helped me with whether we call fungi bugs or not usually not right i think okay. mainly just bacteria oh, okay. all right so, so now ID physicians now you know now you know how to look cool so we're going to kick right off and start talking about gram negative rods and we're going to talk about some big categories of bugs and these are kind of loose um overlapping categories but they're useful to think about because they help us guide what antibiotic therapy to use and tell us a bit about the bug without knowing all the specific details of each one. So thanks to Elise for coming up with the basics of these categories to help people learn them. Again, just double shout out. Um, she specifically asked for it, so now I'm going to make it awkward. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the first big category is general gut bugs. So can you think of any examples, Beck? If by general you mean things that we see a lot of. What I've seen the most of is probably E. coli or Escherichia coli that seems to never deserve the full first name and Klebsiella. Yeah, Klebsiella, which can be pneumonia, Oxytoca, Enterobacter cloacae. They're some of the common ones that you might see. And these are kind of the garden variety ones. They live in the gastrointestinal tract. They often colonize people, but they can sometimes get out and cause trouble, especially things like UTIs or intradominal infections or bacteremia. Mm -hmm. So these are colonizers is the key point for these ones. They're just Yeah, they're not always pathogenic. Yeah. yeah. E. coli, Klebsiella, Enterobacter. All right. All right. And then if they're the general ones, any particular notable gut bugs? So now we've got the next category is the nasty gut bugs nasty so these are ones that if you find them 
they're usually pathogenic. So that's things like salmonella, all the different species of shigella, campylobacter, and also to confuse you, some strains of E. coli, like um, shiga toxigenic E. coli. But we'll talk about that later and try and make it a bit more simple. So these bugs aren't usually present in the um, gut, but when they're there, they usually cause disease, usually gastro. So the gate crashes of the gram negative rods. Yeah, you don't want them at your house party. Nasty bugs. Nasty salmonella, shigella, campylobacter. And then some strains of E. coli. All right. Next category of gram negative rods. Environmental gram negatives. So these are bugs that often live in the environment. So they tend to be more resistant to lots of different antibiotics, but they can also often be less virulent, less pathogenic. So they cause less harm, even though they're resistant to our treatments. So we more often see them in immunocompromised people, um, patients in intensive care, or patients with abnormal lungs like bronchiectasis. And what's the biggest example of this, Davo? So pseudomonas is the, is the big one that you know we really worry about and often need specific antibiotics because it's so resistant to so many things. Exactly. So pseudomonas is kind of the, the, the typical environmental gram-negative, pseudomonas aeruginosa is its full name. And then there's some other ones like stenotrophomonas and burkholderia that you won't see as much. Okay. So the next group is called the atypicals. And we'll talk about why this is a group. And these aren't all gram-negative rods. It's a bit of a loose category. Um, you might have heard about it when we talk about atypical pneumonia. And they can also cause some other respiratory tract infections. And what are three examples of these, Beck? Mycoplasma, Legionella, and Haemophilus. Exactly. So they're the four big categories, general gut bugs, nasty gut bugs, environmental gram negatives, and the atypicals. And just remember, there's some other gram negatives that don't fit in these big categories. For example, gonorrhea or eremonas. And just to clarify now, there's some really confusing words that people use to find hard to understand. And you might see people talking about words like enterobacteriaceae, mm. which is an incredibly long word with way too many vowels at the end. Mm. But basically, that's just a big family of bacteria that includes most of these um, gram negatives. Right. And enterobacteriales is within that. It's actually an order. I don't know if anyone remembers from kind of ETL biology how you had kind of kingdom, what was it? phylogeny, something, something. Anyway, I don't remember all of them. <laughs> very important. <laughs> very important. But order is the step below family. And so enterobacteriales is below that. Cool, cool. And another word you might hear a lot is enteric, which just means lives in the gut. Mm-hmm. And co- coliform just means the same thing. Right. So there were some other c- categories that we used before, but we all subscribe to the Elise McPhail gram-negative categorization system, which is general gut bugs, uh, nasty gut bugs, environmental gut bugs, and then the atypicals. Yeah. So starting with the general gut bugs. So these are bugs that often colonize your um, gastrointestinal tract. So some examples, as we talked about, E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae or Klebsiella oxytoca, Enterobacter cloacae and Proteus mirabilis. So um, they usually live in the gut, but they can sometimes get out and cause trouble. They're the real classic cause of UTIs that you might have learned in med school, you know, E. coli UTIs. Um, they're also a common cause of intra-abdominal infections. Um, any examples of that, Beck? So you often see this in cholangitis. In fact, most of the infections that you see of patients in the general surgery ward, but whatever they're having done there, tend to be tend to be these sort of uh, general 
gram-negative gut bugs that you've just listed? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, cholangitis, post-traumatic, abdominal um, infections or abscesses, post-surgical infections sometimes if it's not saphorous, and um, sometimes big causes of um, sepsis and bacteremia as well. And sometimes we find them in the blood first and then we go looking in the urine or in the abdomen to try and find a source of where the bug came from. So this is a really key thing. As we talked about on the last episode, often you get a drip feed of information. So you might know that you've got a sick patient, you've got that clinical picture, and then you get a blood culture result back that just says gram negative. And before you know exactly what it is, or even once you do know what it is and you find out that it is an E. coli bacteremia or a Klebsiella bacteremia, then you need to figure out where the source of the problem is. So if you have a gram negative bacteremia, you need to look at a urine MCS and you need to examine them very carefully. Uh, Well, you probably start with examination, but looking for an abdominal source. Yeah. And often sometimes you get a CT abdomen as well to make sure there's no little abscess hiding there or um, Mm. breakage or big cancer that's been disrupting the, the gastrointestinal tract and allowing these normal colonizing bacteria to cross the membrane and get into places they're not meant meant to go Mm. or an ultrasound yeah so uh, an interesting little factoid here that was actually brought up in our podcast on utis which was several years ago i think is that when we do a urine dipstick you would have seen that one of the things we look at is nitrates and only the enterobacteraceae can convert nitrites to nitrates so other causes of, of UTI like Staph saprophyticus would not have positive um, nitrites most of the most of the time. So just a little fun fact there. Mm. Yeah. And that's the great thing about the full ward test or the urine dipstick is that it's a kind of instant test. You get results straight away, which can be useful in the ED. So with these general gut bugs, hospitalised patients can become colonised with these bugs and sometimes particularly virulent strains of them, and then they can get infections anywhere. So, for example, you can get hospital-acquired pneumonia with E. coli or Klebsiella. You're best off not thinking too hard about where that infection might have come from. (laughs) (laughs) But wash your hands is the message. Um, (laughs) uh, Chronic wounds like diabetic ulcers can also sometimes get gram-negative infections. And sometimes, as we'll discuss in a later part of this podcast, some of these hospital-acquired bugs can be more resistant as well. Things like ESBL or CRE that we'll explain later. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these species will just hang out in your gut and not cause anything, but some have special virulence factors that predispose them to causing infection instead of just hanging there. Um, And we'll go through some of the nasty gut bugs in the next category, but... um, just remember that some of these general gut bugs, have, like, for example, Kleb- there's some virulent strains of Klebsiella that can cause liver abscess because they've got kind of extra powerful um, virulence factors. And, and just to kind of round off, most of these general gut bugs, a narrow spectrum antibiotic would be something like Augmentin or Keftriaxone, kind of narrow to moderate that would cover a lot of them. Going to the next level up, you'd something like Tazacin or Ciprofloxacin. And for pretty broad cover, you'd be looking at something like meropenem or gentamicin. We'll go all through the resistance patterns later on. Mm, That seems like a great summary, Scott. So in terms of antibiotics for the general gut bugs, um, the narrower spectrum ones would be some of the gram-positive antibiotics we talked about last week, like cephalexin and penicillins have a little bit of gram-negative cover. And then your kind of workhorses, general gram-negative antibiotics are things like augmentin and keftraxone that are pretty good gram-negative cover. 
The next level up would be something like tazacin or ciprofloxacin. And then for really broad therapy, you'd be looking at something like meropenem or gentamicin. I might just add, um, Tazacin is Piperacillin Tazobactam. So Tazacin is the brand name, but in hospital, you'll hear it referred to as Tazacin almost exclusively or Pit-Taz. Yeah. Okay. So that was a great summary of the general gut bugs or like the more commensal gut bacteria that can sometimes cause pathology, but a lot of the time are just kind of chilling out in your gut. The next category we're going to talk about are the nasty gut bugs. So these are the gate crashes. These are the bugs that never belong in your gut and almost always cause pathology. Yeah, exactly. So these are people, gut bugs you don't want at your party. And these include the typical examples are all the different salmonella species. There's a lot, but typhi is one of the important ones. All the different Shigella species like Shigella dysenteriae, Shigella sonniae. Then you've got um, some of the food poisoning bugs like Campylobacter jejuni. Uh, you've got Yersinia, Enterolytica, and um, some of the E. coli. And this, this can be really confusing, but E. coli is a really common bug with a lot of different um, variation and serotypes within the species. And so much so that they've got categories within E. coli to describe E. coli serotypes that have different um, behavior. So some that are more pathogenic or some that just don't cause any harm and just live there nicely with you. Mm-hmm. So some of the words that you'll hear are things like EHEC, E-H-E-C, enterohemorrhagic E. coli. E-tech, enterotoxigenic E. coli, S-tech, sugar toxigenic E. coli that makes sugar toxin. And there's enteroinvasive E. coli. There's a lot of other, um, there's uropathogenic E. coli, all these different four-letter acronyms that you can kind of Google and have a bit of a look at. Mm. Um, And these are just used to kind of group them into rough classes that cause different kinds of disease. Um, Within those groups, there's something called serotypes and that's the way they're named after their antigen. And there's really only one that you'd ever have to know unless you do infectious disease. And that's O157H7. I would say most doctors wouldn't need to know that at all, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about O157 colon H7. I guess only only if you're in MCQ land is probably the only person to know it. Not on the ward. You'll never need to know that on the ward. Yeah, Yeah, this is for like top of of med school MCQ. If you want to be ducks, you can learn that one. Um, And that's just to give you an example, that's one serotype which can... It uh, fits within the S-TEC category because it produces shiga toxin. And it also, within that, it also fits within the E-HEC category, which is, um, so enterohemorrhagic E. coli. So if you think of the word enterohemorrhagic, it causes this severe hemorrhage, this severe dysentery, bloody diarrhea, which can cause really severe disease. And they can have atypical HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome in uh, around 10%. So really nasty bug and treating this bug with antibiotics can actually increase the risk of having atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. And Mm. you you don't need to remember any of the details here, but this just gives you an idea as to why in a lot of guidelines, particularly in the past, they wouldn't recommend giving antibiotics for um, gastroenteritis because you were worried about having this bug. That's interesting. So some other categories you might see are UPEC, uropathogenic E. coli, E-I-E-C, I don't know how you meant to pronounce that, <laughs> enteroinvasive E. coli, or E-A-E-C, 
intro aggregative e coli you really don't need to remember all these terms it's pretty academic well, yeah often the weeds i think but familiarity with the concepts is is important so ehec is ehec is that important one to remember and and you can just think of it as e coli that produce shiga toxin and they're the ones that tend to be more tend to be bad guests at the party and cause yeah. trouble when they're there all right so that's kind of the subsets of e coli that fall in the nasty gut bug group what are the what are some of the other bugs that just don't belong so we talked about Shigella. So there's a lot of different Shigella species that can be pathogenic. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other uh, gut bugs that you might have heard of, like uh, cholera, Vibria cholerae, which is a gram-negative. It's actually comma-shaped um, instead of a rod, which is an unusual shape, but mm. can also cause a infectious diarrhea. And Listeria, which we talked about as a gram-positive rod rather than a gram-negative, can also sometimes cause a diarrhea, but it can also cause severe neonatal meningitis and septus and we talked about it last week mm-hmm. the other one just to mention is out of the different salmonella so if you have salmonellosis then you have infection with a salmonella species mm. but if you have a salmonella infection with salmonella enterica with a with a serotype called typhi it's also called typhoid mm. or if you have infection with enterica serotype paratyphi that's also called paratyphoid and the reason that we gave it a different name to be called typhoid or enteric fever instead of gastro is because often you can have a more of a systemic illness. So you don't just get a gastroenteritis, but you can get these classical rose spots that you can look up from emboli going around the body. You can have often fevers, constipation, abdominal pain. Constipation, um, and that really makes it stand out from all these other organisms, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you can get systemic disease. It's, it can cause a vasculitis or even endocarditis. And the probably the two clinical points that you need to know about salmonella is that it's not diagnosed with a stool culture. The blood culture is much more sensitive. So in most patients, with any patient with gastro who's reasonably sick, you should make sure they get a blood culture for a couple. That's a really good point. Yeah, I remember we when I was a country medreg, uh, we had a typhoid and it took us ages to diagnose that this poor lady who'd been traveling in India had came in kind of three, four times, febrile, sick, or we just couldn't figure out what it was wrong, what was wrong until finally uh, a, a typhoid positive blood culture came back. And because she had no gastro symptoms at all, she had constipation, as you said. Yeah, really tricky one. So a good one to think about blood culture in gastro. Yeah. And just to, obviously there's some kind of specifics for some of these bugs, but as an overall uh, in terms of treatment overall for infectious gastroenteritis, if they've got really mild disease with just diarrhea, we often treat it supportively. But if they've got moderate to severe disease with, you know, um, features of sepsis or blood in their stool or kind of really refractory high um, stool output, then we usually treat them with either fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin first line, or we treat them with keftraxone. Which is a third generation cephalosporin. Mm-hmm. All righty, so that's a nasty gut bugs. The next category we're going to talk about was the environmental bugs, right, Scott? Yeah, so there's one really famous environmental bug that we talked about, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Mm. And this is a really special gram-negative rod. And like uh, these environmental bugs, it's often in the environment. It lives in water and soil. Or sometimes it can colonise scarred um, bronchiectatic lungs of people with bronchiectasis. And like the bugs in this category tend to be quite resistant to a lot of different antibiotics. Um, and 
Pseudomonas stands out among them in not only is it quite resistant, but it, it can sometimes be pretty virulent and cause pretty severe infections as well. You particularly need to worry about pseudomonas in immunocompromised patients, patients with cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, patients with diabetic foot infections, or hospitalized patients with a lot of drains or prosthesis that the pseudomonas can stick to. Mm. So yeah, it's another one of those like sticky bugs, right? That loves loves prostheses and any bit of plastic that we put in a patient often gets colonized with, with pseudomonas. Yeah, and th- the reason why we think about it separately is that often we think of a whole extra category of antibiotics called anti-pseudomonal antibiotics. Uh, do you know what these are, Beck? So tazacin, kefepime, some of the, or, or all of the carbapenems, meropenem, for example, gentamicin, and the fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin. Yeah, so one of the most common questions I get asked is we need to treat this patient with a pseudomonas UTI, what oral agent we can we give them? And I say, is it, is it resistant to, is it sensitive to ciprofloxacin? And if they say no, then there's no other oral agents. It's the only oral antibiotic in that list. Yeah, Which yeah. is really important to remember. And that I think means that we need to be careful not to throw it around because what happens when we lose that? Big trouble. Yeah. yeah, and it's it becomes quite an issue in bronchiectasis patients from, from memory as well, where you're really kind of tr- trying to save the Cipro because once once they're colonized with ciprofloxus and resistant pseudomonas, you know, they just have to be in hospital for every infection they get, truly sucks. Exactly, and you'll see patients with cystic fibrosis sometimes go home on intravenous antibiotics for um, bronchiectasis for a few days for exacerbations so- as well. So pseudomonas is something that I've seen a lot of on the diabetic foot wards. And something to, to know is that you can actually look at it and it's one of those things where the Petri dish is the patient. So the uh, the kind of discharge that patients get in a pseudomonas infection is fluorescent green. It actually looks like someone's just gotten a green highlighter and drawn all over their foot. And so that's a that's an interesting little fact about pseudomonas and if, you, thing... if you're a super smeller like beck you, you can actually just <laughs> walk into the room and, and, and diagnose your patients so I, I think the other thing about it as well is that pseudomonas sometimes is is colonizing wounds like this and, and doesn't always necessarily need to be treated there might be another pathogenic agent particularly in patients with diabetic foot infections or, or even bronchiectasis where things are often uh, polymicrobial. So pseudomonas, I, I would say tread lightly and, and get help. It's a good one to, again, get on the phone to Scott, which I think is really the moral of this whole podcast. <laughs> so yeah, pseudomonas is the most important environmental bug, gram-negative environmental bug. But what are some of the other ones that you sometimes come across? So the other ones in this category of environmental bugs that are antibiotic resistant, but not um, super virulent, are things like um, stenotrophomonas, acinetobacter, Burkholderia, serratia. But if you see any of these bugs, like with pseudomonas, sometimes they can just be colonizing and, and be positive, but not be causing an infection, or sometimes they can be significant and they need pretty kind of intense antibiotic regimens to treat. So we're idea always very happy if you give us a call, if you find one of these bugs in a sputum or on a wound and you want to decide what, how to treat it and what to give mm. and I might or whether have- not to treat it. I might also say it's not all about the antibiotics, particularly when it comes to wounds, dressings and keeping the, um, the moisture level at an appropriate level can often be enough to eliminate the pseudomonas. Mm, for sure. 
Exactly. Even in people, for example, people who have um, chronic burns or have their skin disrupted, they usually will have stuff like pseudomonas and stenotrophomonas and it'll just be living there. So it doesn't always need treatment. Um, so just to summarize antibiotic treatment of the non-pseudomonas ones, that can be pretty complicated because a lot of them have very resistant things. Like for example, stenotrophomonas is intrinsically resistant to carbapenem and all the beta-lactams and um, also res uh, intrinsically resistant to aminoglycosides like gentamicin. So you have to use funny things like trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. Or Bactrim. Mm. Yeah. All And so the last category, Scott, so we've talked about general gut bugs, nasty gut bugs, environmental gut bugs. So these are all gram negatives. And then the other one is the, the atypicals. Yeah. So this is another one of those loose categories that we invented because it's really helpful when uh, we think about what antibiotic we want to use to treat the bugs. So these are a group of largely intracellular bugs that live inside human cells. And these can cause atypical pneumonia or other respiratory tract infections. And they're all gram negatives, um, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Some of them don't. <laughs> so but, yeah, they're basically all gram negatives. Yeah. Some of them don't have a cell wall, so they, you won't be able to see them on the gram stain. Right. But basically gram negatives. The most important ones, Davo, do you know what they are? Hemophilus influenza, uh, Legionella, Chlamydia psittacae, and Mycoplasma pneumonia are the four big ones that, that I used to know. Yep. They love that on MCQs, cause of atypical pneumonia. They do, yeah. So atypical pneumonia is a clinical syndrome, which is a bit different to a typical pneumonia, where there's more prominent, often it's more subacute, so it takes longer to come on. Patients can have a dry cough, they can have a headache or diarrhea. And on the chest X-ray, um, it's usually there's not this that classical low bar consolidation where you see a big chunk of um, consolidation on the chest X-ray. Often it's a more diffuse pattern or no changes at all. Um, it exists in MCQ land, but in the real world, there's lots of overlap. It, you know, uh, normal pneumonias can also have these atypical pneumonia symptoms, and even within some of these pathogens, there's a little bit of variance, but Sometimes it's helpful to think about uh, this kind of atypical pneumonia syndrome. My, my, I, I think we still think about it, but my, my impression is that it's a little bit old-fashioned um, to go, kind of be thinking typical atypical pneumonia um, or, and the typical atypical bugs supposedly responsible for these distinct syndromes. But we, it's, yeah. still, it's still a useful framework. Yeah, and the reason that ID regs still talk about this syndrome is because it's got different antibiotics that we use to treat it. So because they're intracellular, the normal antibiotics don't work, a lot of them, like the, you know, things like Augmentin. So we need to use things like azithromycin, uh, which is a macrolide antibiotic. Oral or IV. So you can use either one. It's got really good oral bioavailability. But if a patient is in ICU and can't really eat, then you can give them the IV version of azithromycin. It's also got a half-life of three days. So you never need to treat a patient Apart from really severe Legionella pneumonia, normally you never need to treat a patient for more than five days. So if you see a normal pneumonia patient on the ward is day six, you should make sure you stop the azithromycin. That's good to know. Great. So apart from azithromycin or doxy, then you can also use ciprofloxin for severe ICU Legionella pneumonia, but you won't see that very much. Alrighty. So um, there's some other respiratory bugs that kind of loosely fit into this group but are a little bit different clinically. So Haemophilus influenzae, um, is uh, of this, there's the strain group B, 
which is this really virulent strain that can cause uh, invasive disease, including meningitis and epiglottitis. But we don't see it much in Australia because everyone's immunized against it. And that's, that's what we talk about when we say HIB, right? HIB, that's that. Um, yeah, exactly. HIB, that's the virulent strain that causes this other syndrome as opposed to an atypical pneumonia or yeah. other infections. But uncommon in Australia these days, although maybe yeah. it'll become more common with the anti-vaxxers. <laughs> um, and just to kind of say some other ones you might hear of, um, Bordetella pertussis is another respiratory infection, um, gram-negative rod that, we don't see much in Australia because most people are immunised against it. And Moraxella cateralis is just another gram-negative cocci that sometimes causes respiratory infections. And that's that's the atypicals. All right, awesome. Just to summarise so far, we've talked about commensal gut bugs, nasty gut bugs, environmental bugs, notably pseudomonas, the atypicals you just covered. Um, so they were the kind of the four main categories, but there were some leftovers that you wanted to mention. Yeah, so we're going back to the gram stain. And we're going to gram-negative cocci. And Beck, if someone has a lumbar puncture and on their CSF, you see a gram-negative diplococci, what do you think straight away? I think Neisseria meningitidis. Yeah, exactly. Also known as meningococcus, which sometimes confuses people. So Neisseria meningitidis. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important bug that causes, it's very deadly. It causes severe disease. It can cause meningitis and meningococcal sepsis. And they can get that horrible non-blanching rash that you'll that you'll hear about when people talk about meningism and, and really severe disease. Um, and that's treated with high dose keftraxone, so two grams BD instead of the normal daily dose. And then closely to, related to that, right, is gonorrhea or Neisseria gonorrhea, which causes more downstairs infections. Exactly. So it's same same genus, same first word, Neisseria, but the second word's gonorrhea. And that bug can also cause sometimes a disseminated disease. Uh, we actually saw it recently at my hospital where we had a young man come in after being sexually active and he had uh, vesicular rashes and he had migrating oligoarthritis, so pain and swelling of different joints. Mm. And we did a PCR test on one of his vesicles and we found gonorrhea on his hand. What's, the, what's this guy wandering out of MCQ land into the real world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my consultant was shocked. He's like, yeah. this is straight out of a textbook. This, this doesn't happen. <laughs> 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 and the important thing here is that there's been cases found now of pan-resistant gonorrhea to all the antibiotics that we have. So the question very is whether... Scary. Very scary. It might be the next incurable STI after Here's HIV. Here's your condom, kids. And yep. just, just asking for a friend, um, does, does pan-resistant gonorrhea, is that going to be less virulent than, uh, than your typical resistant gonorrhea? Uh, it's not really known yet. Not, not known. Let's not find yep. out. Yeah. So, um, and just while we're talking about gram-negative cocci, just remember that we mentioned a couple of rare gram-negative cocci last slide, like the Moraxella cateralis and that Haemophilus influenzae is a cocobacilli, just to confuse you, halfway between the two categories. So yeah. gram-negative cocci, I think Neisseria. Yeah. Yeah. Everything you said after that was basically ASMR to me, Scott. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think for most, most medical students, that's, uh, that's all they'll need to know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's good, to, good that this is good for you as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So I'm just going to quickly revise everything we've said so far because it's been a big information overload. So what are the four big groups of gram-negative rods? I'm going to go Beck, then Davor, and you have to give me a couple of examples each time. So Beck, general gut bugs. E. coli, some of them. Klebsiella, some of them. Davor, nasty gut bugs. So the big one that I think of here is Salmonella typhi or, or typhoid or you know those other kind of nastiest strains of E. coli like E. heck. Yeah, um, environmental spec. Pseudomonas. Yeah, and double atypicals. Uh, so Legionella and the atypical, other atypical pneumonias is, is yeah. a good example of that. <laughs> no, it's not the atypical. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the atypical. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> so now we're going to talk about antibiotics for gram-negative infections. So let's. So before we talk about the specific patterns, I want to talk a bit generally about how resistance works. So we talked about this a little bit last week, but bacteria can learn uh, to be resistant to um, antibiotics in different ways. I guess they're not really learning that of a nervous system, but let's, let's think of it that way. These bugs, these little insects that are learning. So some of the most common methods are beta-lactamases. So things that these little enzymes that actually break down the antibiotics before they can harm the bacteria efflux pumps, which just pump the antibiotics out of the bacteria. Bacteria can modify their cell wall to have reduced uptake of different antibiotics, or they can alter their binding site. For example, the penicillin binding site that penicillin sticks to. This um, stuff is so amazing. And it just happens so quickly as well. Uh, for all you kind of intelligent design people out there, just kind of watch a Petri dish for a few weeks and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting. It's yeah. evolution in action. Yeah, it's really cool. So these genes for these resistance mechanisms can be chromosomal. So on the bacteria chromosome, you know, inherited by the little bacteria babies when they make new bacteria, or something amazing that bacteria can do that people can't is they can actually transfer their genes between different bacteria and sometimes even between different species of bacteria, which is called horizontal gene transfer. Which is pretty cool. Mm. This is often by these little circles of DNA called plasmids, these little double-stranded DNA circles that can be transferred between bacteria and can carry different resistance genes or sometimes even whole cassettes of different resistance genes. So the most important and common resistance mechanism to know about is beta-lactamases. And we talked about this a little bit last episode, but these are beta-lactamases, so enzymes which break down the beta-lactam ring, and that beta-lactam ring is present in penicillins, cephalosporins, and carbapenems as part of the structure of the molecule. Mm. We also talked about beta-lactamase inhibitors, which break down these beta-lactamases to protect the antibiotics. But this all gets a bit confusing because some of these uh, beta-lactamases will work against some of these beta-lactam antibiotics, and some of these beta-lactamase inhibitors will work against some of these beta-lactamases. So if that hasn't already confused you, it, it, confused, <laughs> it confused the microbiologists. So they invented the categories that we're going to talk about shortly, things like ESBL and CPE. Okay. So this constant cross-species gene-sharing orgy means that gram-negative resistance is a bit more difficult to predict by species than for the gram-positives that we talked about last episode. Mm. and infection prevention once we find a resistant strain is really important right 
And so is that is that just because of the cell wall? Um, that it's if you've got a cell wall, it's harder to kind of transfer these plasmids. Presumably, uh, I'm ac- I'm actually not sure why. Like, because gram positive any um, bacteria can also have you know share genes in different ways. It's a right. real kind of emerging area of research, and mm. there's it, it's not only plasmids. There is other ways that they can do it, but um, plasmids is the most important one. Right. And so, is is gram negative resistance overall more common? than gram-positive resistance, or it's just something we, that's kind of more variable, so we've got to be more more worried about it? Uh, I guess resistance is like a subjective concept, right? Like, mm. How subjective um, is it? In my opinion, <laughs> this is MRSA, but others may disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, you know, for example, enterococcus is always just intrinsically resistant to keftriaxone. Mm. You know, there's different species of bugs that, are, that have different resistance patterns or, you know, even... Mm. You know, Stenotrophomonas was always resistant to carbapenems even right, before right. we started using them. So, right. so it's but, not necessarily more common amongst gram negatives, but it maybe spreads between gram negative bugs a little bit more easily. And spreads a bit more easily. Yeah. And we've got less options, right? Because the first, all the first antibiotics we invented, the things like the penicillins and the, you know, the cephalosporins, a lot of them don't work against some of these bugs. So that's, that's why we find it challenging. Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it as well. Anyway, um, before I derailed us once again, you, you were going to tell us about kind of the categorization of these resistant groups. So here are the, the four main categories to know about. So there's sensitive bugs, so also called wild type because they're kind of the standard bugs in the wild that haven't learned, you know, um, kind of pre-orig- pre-original sin, I guess. They haven't become <laughs> evil and become resistant. ESBL or extended spectrum beta lactamase, which is the most important group we'll talk about. Then we've got CPE, carbapenemase producing enterobacteriales or enterobacteriaceae, also called CRE, just to confuse you, carbapenem resistant mm-hmm. um, enterobacteriaceae, but pretty much the same thing. CRE's, CPE is the main way that organisms are CRE. So most of the, all the CPEs are CREs and mm-hmm. CPE is the most important one. Um, and then we've got a, a medical acronym, which is famous enough that it's become a bit established, called the Escapum bugs, E-S-C-A-P-P-M, that we'll talk about. So this is all really complicated, but in another way, it kind of simplifies things because once you've got the sensitivities back for a bug, you can just think about them as their category. As you know, you've got an E. coli that's an ESBL or a Klebsiella that's a CPE and if you have that information, that, that that's usually enough to guide what antibiotics to use and how to treat them. Okay, okay. great. So that that's also great. seems like you know quite important information to maybe re- maybe have in your head before you pick up and call Scott, because you will be calling Scott. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to, you know, not say that I've got an E. coli bacteremia, but um, ESBL. E. coli would be would be would make your job yeah. a little easier. You sound very. If you want to sound smart, that's what you say. Okay, yeah. okay. So person knows what they're talking about. So in terms of the, these different four categories, let's go through them one by one. First, we've got the sensitive or wild type, you know, not very resistant bacteria. And these are often sensitive to most of our antibiotics, even a lot of those old school penicillins and cephalosporins that we talked about last episode. Uh, but some of them have beta-lactamases, but they're called narrow spectrum beta-lactamases. This used to really confuse me, but Basically, that means, you know, they've got a beta-lactamase, but it only works against some of the antibiotics. So it doesn't protect the bacteria from antibiotics like keftriaxone. Yeah, gotcha. 
and it might be sensitive to drugs like augmentin, which is amoxicillin plus clavulanic acid. The clavulanic acid is a beta-lactamase inhibitor, so it smashes the beta-lactamase. And these narrow-spectrum beta-lactamases just get smashed. They don't make the bacteria very resistant. Okay. So that's a sensitive wild-type resistant category of gram-negative bugs? Yeah, and you often treat them with some of the, you know, kefalexin or amoxicillin, something like that. Mm -hmm. The next really important category is ESBL, extended spectrum beta-lactamases. And clinically, this is the most important one to know about and definitely to check if the patient has when you call ID. So there's there's different resistance mechanisms, but most of these are uh, plasmid-mediated. So these are these resistance genes that are on these plasmids and these bacteria are always producing all these really powerful beta-lactamases that are just smashing all the antibiotics that are trying to attack the bacteria. The definition of ESBL, how do we decide if it's one of these narrow spectrum beta-lactamases or if it's an ESBL, extended spectrum, we say it's resistant to keftriaxone. That's the definition. So it's the real kind of watershed antibiotic here. Resistant to keftriaxone, it's an extended spectrum beta-lactamases. And Usually they'll be resistant to all the early generation cephalosporins and most of the penicillins as well. Usually they'll be resistant to augmentin as well. Mm-hmm. So we usually recommend treatment with carbapenem, like meropenem, or gentamicin, aminoglycosides. Tassicin sometimes works, but there was an Australian study called Merino, which showed that meropenem worked better for ESBL bacteremias. Gotcha. And ciprofloxin also sometimes works, but it just depends on the bug. And just to give you a bit of an idea, at the hospital I work at, they're usually about kind of 10 to 15% of our gram negatives that we find are ESBLs, mm. so resistant to keftriaxone. And so this is where that principle you talked about last time about, you know, how sick is the patient? Can we take a 10 to 15% chance that this is actually an ESBL bug? Um, is exactly. going to dictate your, your antibiotic prescription. I think that's a good, that's a really good framework and principle to think about that. So if it's UTI going to ICU, really, really sick, you'd probably give them meropenem. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So that's ESBLs, which we usually treat with carbapenems or aminoglycosides. What's the next category? The next big category is CPE, which you know what that stands for, Beck? Carbapenemase producing enterobacterialis. Yeah, exactly. Um, so CPE or CRE, which in, in practice usually m- means the same thing, carbapenem resistant enterobacteriaceae. Those two big categories we talked about that covers most of the gram-negative bacteria that we see in clinical medicine. So these are really, really effective beta-lactamases that can even smash down carbapenems as well as penicillins and cephalosporins. Yeah. So we've lost all our main antibiotic options to treat them. That's really scary. And and in places like India in particular, CPE is just everywhere, isn't it? India, and even it's starting to get quite common in parts of Europe and America as well. Um, But we're pretty lucky in Australia. We we, we see kind of a smattering of these, but they're not not very common. So if you see one, you should always discuss with ID because these are really hard to treat. There's really not many options. And we learn subgroups of this, which I won't really go through, but things like IMP, IMP, metallobetalactamases, OXA, all these fancy words that I won't confuse you with. And we often need to use really expensive medications that need, at my hospital, you need to get the head of the ID department to authorize them. So 
things like yeah. Keftazadim, Avibactam, and Aztrianam. I'm just saying them here in case you have to write them down and you've never heard of them before. Or Meropenem Vaborbactam, which is a Vaborbactam is a really broad spectrum beta lactamase inhibitor mm. that works even better than they can help the Meropenem get into the resistant bacteria. And just for context, I have never heard of Vaborbactam. <laughs> maybe I've just had my eyes closed all these years, or it's very uncommonly used. Yeah, unless Any unless you're in. I've heard of. Yeah, amikacin is just think of it like gentamicin, but it works against some of the bugs that are resistant to gentamicin. So it's kind of an extra broad spectrum gentamicin against gram-negative bugs. Mm-hmm. And some, some other rarer ones are things you might see are things like colistin or tiger cyclin. That's super scary. Another good reason to be living in Fortress, Australia. It's the uh, <laughs> RD, RD doctor's paradise. Uh, Pretty so- lucky. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just before we move on, I, the thing I wanted to say, which I think I, I found a bit confusing as a junior doctor, any patient who in Australia who comes from overseas, we, we screen them all for CRE if they've had any overseas hospital contact in the last two years. And we put them in contact precautions until we get that result back. And we can do CRE. We also do CRE screening on patients who've been in ICU for a long time. And that if we find that they've got one of these, uh, a gut bug that's got a really resistant gene on it, then we know that it might have shared its resistance with another more virulent bug or that bug might get out of the gut and cause a really resistant infection later so that when that patient goes downhill, we know to give them really broad spectrum antibiotics. Yeah. Okay. So avoiding the arms trade. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So escapum. So escapum, this one's kind of bonus points. But it confuses people a lot, so I thought we'd mention it here. Escapum is an acronym to remember a series of, uh, what's that, seven bacteria, Enterobacter, Serratia, Citrobacter, Eremonis, Proteus vulgaris, Providentia, and Morganella, which you don't really have to remember. But these bacteria can carry an inducible beta-lactamase in their chromosome called a chromosomal ABC. You might be familiar, might not. And I might, the- I might just interrupt here just to say that actually I think this is really, really clinically important. So anyone who's zoning out, come back in because this is, this is a really important thing. Yeah, and why this is important is, and you can't just, some of you might be saying, well, why do I care about, you know, learning all these resistance patterns? I'll just put everyone on meropenem and wait till I get my sensitivities back. And then if it's sensitive, I'll give them that antibiotic. These bugs can sometimes carry a beta-lactamase in their chromosome, so not on their plasmid, and that they can turn on and off. So when sometimes when we test their sensitivities, it looks like it's sensitive to an antibiotic, but actually it just takes some time to turn on and then the the bacteria become resistant to the antibiotic because they start producing that beta-lactamase. Yeah, so they cheat on the test. That's so tricky and so important to remember. Yeah. So as a rule of thumb, we generally treat them like ESBLs. We give them carbapenems or sometimes kefepime. But for any of these bugs, we'd really recommend that you call ID to chat about the treatment with, because even if they're, they might be reported as you know sensitive to keftraxone, but they might be carrying this dangerous gene that can turn on and cause resistance. Okay. All right. And then uh, the last kind of category you wanted to talk about was pseudomonas again. 
Yeah, I think we've already talked about pseudomonas a lot, but I just wanted to mention it again here that it's a gram-negative that um, has is very can be very resistant and important, and it can actually carry some of these um, you know CPEs and things, or it can have its own different resistance mechanisms as well. Yeah, awesome. But, Great. So, now we're going to talk about how you choose uh, antibiotic for gram-negative infection if you're worried about it. What What do you think is the first principle of choosing an antibiotic? So always look at the patient. How sick are they and are they immunocompromised and are they at risk of bugs with resistance? Exactly. So they're the two questions you should ask yourself whenever you're deciding how, how broad to make your antibiotic plan. Uh, how sick are they and what's the risk that they've got a really resistant bug? And, and to, to decide if they've got resistant bug, if you call the ID reg, probably the three questions they'll usually ask you are, do they have a known history of a resistant bug? Because remember, patients can be colonized and if they've had an infection in the past, they can have another infection with the same resistant bug. I think it's a really good point. When I was a, when I was a heme resident, I spent a lot of time like navigating our awfully clunky path system that we had back in the day, like looking at every every bacteremia, even every bug that's been grown in this patient just to see what previous resistance I've had. And that was really important to deciding what antibiotics um, we were going to use. Yep. Otherwise, we'll have to just sit there and do it with you on the phone, which can take a long time. Yeah. And this is um, where ID regs are just way too nice. <laughs> you wouldn't take that for a stroke? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <I> would. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Time is brain, but, you know, they've got plenty of brain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, the other risk factors, so we want to know what bugs they've had in the past because, remember, they can be colonised and have recurrent infections with more resistant bugs. We want to know how many hospitalizations they've had or if they've got a lot of comorbidities that increase their risk of uh, resistant bugs. And we want to know if they've been overseas, particularly in the last couple of years, and have they been to areas with really high levels of resistance like India, Southeast Asia, Middle East, and kind of parts of Eastern Europe and Africa. So just to give an overall summary of antibiotics, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but um, Beck, what do you think would be a narrow spectrum gram-negative antibiotic? So just cover some of them. Yeah, so again, this is narrow amongst the gram-negatives. Something that predominantly actually covers gram-positive like kepazolin or amoxicillin will also cover some of those gram-negative organisms. Exactly. And if you want to kind of moderate gram-negative cover, then we'd often use our workhorse keftriaxone that defines the ESBL, if try anything. Yeah. Or we'll use Augmentin. It's got pretty good gram-negative cover, gram-positive cover, and also anaerobic cover. And it's an oral agent, so amoxicillin plus clavulanic acid. Yeah, it also comes in IV, but or, or uh, IV, sorry. really good option as an oral agent, really common antibiotic to use. ID physicians like it, you'll get bonus points if you use Augmentin. So if you want to choose a broad antibiotic because they've got some of those risk factors for resistant infection or they're really sick, then you might use Tazacin or Kefepine. Um, Gentamicin is another good one or Ciprofloxacin for an oral antibiotic. And, and most and, of those antibiotics you mentioned are good against Pseudomonas in particular, right? Yeah. So most of all, all of those actually are um, well, effective against Pseudomonas and they're also... Some least, ESBL cover. Exactly. A good chance of having ESBL cover most of the time. Yeah. Then we've got the extra broad antibiotics that are um, consistently effective against ESBL, things like meropenem 
and amikacin, which is the super version, the upgraded version of gentamicin that's more broad. And then after that, the next category is special antibiotics that will be prescribed by the ID team, but things like keftazidine, aztreonam, avibactam, sorry, keftazidine, avibactam, aztreonam, which is usually a combination, uh, meropenem, vaborbactam, and other antibiotics you might not have heard of. Probably the only other one to quickly mention here, because you often see it in ICU or in hematology teams, is if we're really worried about stenotrophomonas, sometimes we'll treat empirically with uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. This is this is one that I, you'll actually see more than a lot of these other weird and wonderful ones. Uh, it's known as Bactrim is the brand name, and it's another oral agent. Yep, Bactrim, and they've just changed it last year to Respirum just to confuse people even more. And what? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you've got, what, what is that? Um, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, like 10 syllables. Yeah. <laughs> The Bactrim or Respirum, but that'll usually be guided by ID because there's kind of low dose regimens and high dose regimens, and it's a bit of a toxic antibiotic. So mm. we don't usually just chuck people on it and, unless we're really worried about a severe infection. Awesome. So just uh, we're going to do a real quick side effect of antibiotic summary, and this will be very, we'll just try and do one sentence on each. So Davo, do you remember what the common side effects of beta-lactam antibiotics are? So beta-lactam antibiotics are often associated with allergic reactions, uh, particularly kind of more the penicillins and the cephalosporins. That's the main one. So the side effects are allergic reactions. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's right. the only one. <laughs> um, it's so weird. Like, th- you know, you usually pull, pull, pull out drug side effects and it's like as long as your arm. But, you know, for this one, it's just one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, yeah, they can cause anaphylaxis. They can also cause a rash. They can cause a fever. Some uh, can cause acute kidney injury. And they're probably the most important common beta-lactam reactions. What about um, Beck versus gentamicin? Do you know what the most common side effects are? So with gentamicin, you're always worried about acute kidney injury. Yeah, exactly. So acute kidney injury and... Oh, and um, autotoxicity is the other yeah. one. Yeah, so we, we actually don't use it really at the Royal Melbourne for that reason, I think. Like we do, we do a little bit, but it, it's certainly not a standard antibiotic uh, that you would use for kind of a, a, a UTI. Mm, depending uh, on where you work, though, I have seen it thrown around a lot more at other centres. So yeah, it, in regional centres, they use a lot more gentamicin. I remember being shocked when I kind of went to the country as a, as a resident under Medridge. And we, yeah. we just exclusively use Keftriaxone instead at RMH. Yeah, we use, we use it a lot at the Alfred because, at, you know, that, that ototoxicity, that hearing loss is irreversible. So it's a really severe side effect. And they can also have vestibular toxicity so permanent balance issues so really severe but it's usually it's dose dependent so if someone just gets one or two doses of gentamicin while we're waiting for their results to come back they're usually fine but if people are on if you see anyone on the ward on more than three days of gentamicin you should escalate to the id team or your consultant straight away because that's really an example where i've you know i've heard of people being really really hurt disabled permanently from yeah. using that antibiotic badly that's really interesting and and as i'm sure everyone's aware like having an antibiotic run for a few extra days and, and then they should just happens all the time 
So that's something to really be aware of. It's actually it's actually so toxic gentamicin to the ear that when people have bad Meniere's disease and you and you've kind of just given up on that semicircular canal entirely and just want to kill it, that's what that's what they use. They just inject gentamicin directly into wow the, to get rid into, of the into the inner ear, yeah, or like, yeah, just to just to kind of ablate it. Wow. Yeah. So make sure no one gets long courses of gentamicin. You could yeah. save someone's hearing. Absolutely. So the next, probably the last big category we're going to talk about is anaerobes. I, I used to find this really confusing, but basically these are all the bacteria that like growing in the absence of oxygen or in low oxygen, and they can be gram-negative rods, they can be gram-positive cocci, they can be gram-positive rods, you know, they, there's lots of different ones. But like these other categories we made up, we, we, call, we call it a category because we like it to choose our antibiotic therapy. It's useful for that reason. And the other thing about anaerobes as well, it doesn't grow well, right? So it's it's often the only data point you'll get from the lab is it's an anaerobe. Exactly. I used to find that yeah confusing why people talked about anaerobes so much, but it, some of them are really hard to grow in the lab. So we just say we can see anaerobes. Uh, and some of these kinds of infections are- all... on our coffee break. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good enough. And often they're, depending on the infection, some of them are often kind of uh, mixed- so multiple bugs causing the infections. They just say, oh, there's anaerobes here. And they very rarely do sensitivities in the lab. We usually treat them empirically once we know that they're anaerobes or sometimes once we've gotten the species. So just to put some words um, uh, in your head, the, some examples are the, the real classic anaerobe is Bacterioides fragilis. Um, but some other ones you might hear about are Fusobacterium, some of the Clostridium species we talked about last episode, Clostridium perfringens. Big deal because that's gas gangrene. Yeah, yeah. So anaerobes live in the gut and in the mouth. And the important difference clinically is that a lot of the mouth anaerobes, um, which there's some other names that you might see on some uh the culture of someone's throat, like cutie bacterium or um, peptostreptococcus, which you don't need to remember. I, I think it's a great name. Used to be called propionibacterium, so it's a big upgrade. And cephalexin and penicillin often have, uh, particularly penicillins, can cover some of these mouth anaerobes, but for the gut anaerobes, we need to use the classic anaerobe antibiotic. Do you know what that is, Beck? Uh, metronidazole? Yep. Metro underground, think train, low oxygen, the best Amazing. anaerobe antibiotic, IV or oral, really good. And you'll see sometimes we use it um, in gut infections along with keftraxone because keftraxone is pretty poor anaerobe cover. Um, but some of the other antibiotics with a bit of anaerobe cover are augmentin. Uh, clindamycin has gram-positive and anaerobe cover. Tazacin has fairly good anaerobe cover and meropenem has pretty good anaerobe cover as well. But metronidazole is the gold standard. Great. So now we're just going to talk about some of the little categories of other bacteria, just because we haven't talked about them in last episode or this episode, So because they don't fit on our gram stain nicely. We've got mycobacterium, things like TB, mycobacterium tuberculosis, and Borrelia ulcer, you might see if you live in Victoria, by mycobacterium ulcerans. Then we've got groups that are a funny shape, like spirochetes, and the classic example is syphilis. 
which we did a whole episode on a couple of years ago, if anyone wants to have a listen. Penicillin, think penicillin, syphilis, penicillin. They've never proven resistance to it. Sometimes you need to give a couple of weeks IV though to really wow. get good penetration for neurosyphilis. And then there's a group of uh, tick-borne illnesses and rickettsial illnesses, and they're really dependent on where you are in the world, what are the local ones that you'll see. But um, ID doctors will sometimes talk about acute doxycycline deficiency where <laughs> a, a patient's got recurrent fevers, maybe a headache, and we just give them a trial of doxycycline to treat them for rickettsial illnesses. And it'll also hit some of those atypical pneumonias as well. And some of the examples are Rocky Mountain spotted fever in America, scrub typhus in Australia. And I, I guess if you're thinking about categories, things like um, leptospirosis and Lyme disease probably fit in kind of similar to here as well. And I reckon Lyme disease is probably present in about 1% of the patients who think they have Lyme disease. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's very, very overdiagnosed uh, in Australia where it doesn't really hang out. Well, I think, yeah. I think there's never been a proven case of Lyme in Australia. <laughs> Great. Which, said, is a, which is a really, which is a really important <laughs> fact to note. Yeah, they <laughs> have to I'm, have been to America or somewhere else. Yeah, because I've Lyme seen five, five patients also again, that have claimed to have Lyme disease. Yeah. So um, the other, some of the other categories we haven't talked about are protozoa, like malaria, and um, fungi, which can also cause resistant infections, particularly for patients not getting better and they're a bit immunocompromised. So that's it. We've done all the bugs, all the all bugs, bugs in two episodes somehow. Pretty impressive, Thanks, Scott. Scott. Awesome. So now we're going to, uh, I thought we'd just do a little bit of revision by going through a couple of cases really quickly. Mm. And the main, before I do it, I, I want to say that there's a lot to learn here. And the best way to learn is um, to, whenever you see an infection, think about what antibiotics you'd give, what it would cover, and then check it. And the best way to do that is to uh, download an app, which I have not been sponsored by, but is called the Sanford Antibiotic Guidelines. It's got these little red um, Chinese characters as a logo and all basically all ID physicians use it. Um, it's, it doesn't need internet. It's super quick to get an answer. Compare for two antibiotics, which bugs it covers, what's the difference. And so whenever I have a question in my head, I just guess in my head and then I check it on the app mm. and use that to study. Best $32.50 I ever spent. Yeah. If you're in Australia, the um, ETG therapeutic guidelines are useful because often the bugs that we have here are a bit less resistant than some of the ones overseas. So sometimes overseas guidelines use very broad spectrum antibiotics that we don't always need. And just while I'm hawking ID resources, if you have any vaccine question, which we haven't talked about today, the Australian Immunisation Handbook is really useful and answers most of the questions. So we're going to end with a case. So Mrs. Berry. So Mrs. Berry is a 76-year-old lady who's currently living it up at home alone on the tea and toast diet, having a great time. <laughs> she, she's got a history of cholecystectomy and hypertension. She presents to ED with three days of dysuria, not responding to kefalexin, which was started by the GP yesterday. In ED today, she's got a fever, a mild tachycardia of 110, a blood pressure of 90 over 50, and respiratory rate of 24 on room air, and she looks a bit dehydrated on examination. She tells you that she comes from a cranberry family. She lives on a cranberry farm and drinks nothing but cranberry-flavoured tea and cranberry juice and demands to know how this happens. What do you think, <laughs> Beck? 
Well, it's definitely not a uh, urinary tract infection because she has so much cranberry juice. So we can exclude that, right? Yeah, 100% efficacy cranberry juice for preventing urinary tract infections. But let's so, say hypothetically, if it weren't, uh, I would be thinking <laughs> about a, a UTI in this lady with dysuria and fevers. Yeah. Particularly so, pyelonephritis if she's got fevers, right? Yeah, so a severe UTI. She's got some features of um, hypotension, maybe some features of sepsis, and we'd worry about a bacteremia or pyelonephritis. So we'd be worried about a compl- what we call a complicated UTI. Yeah. So you give her some IV fluids, you send off blood and urine cultures, and while you're waiting for that, what do you think the likely pathogens are that we might be wanting to cover if we think this is a UTI? So I'm going to want to know a little bit more about her, but you've already said that she's not living in an aged care facility. She's at home. So I'm thinking it's going to be something a bit more stock standard. The most likely thing here is going to be E. coli. So I'm thinking probably gram, a gram-negative infection more generally is, is going to be more likely. There are some gram-positives, though, that would be, would be possible. There's some gram-positives that, that can cause urinary tract infections. Yeah, um, which one? Which one would we worry about the most? Do you know? I know that some of the staphylococcus species can can cause infections. In in younger women, I'd be worried about staphylococcus saprophyticus, which I, I think is probably less likely in her age group. Yeah, and yeah, really good. And intracoccus is the other gut oh, bug. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then the one that's actually common. <laughs> yeah. So as Beck said. We're thinking this is one of the our category of general gut bugs, you know, and which can be resistant or not resistant. So Beck was thinking, you know, d- does she have some risk factors for resistance? Is she from a nursing home or something else? And then we also want to cover some of the gram positives like uh, enterococcus. So in my, in, if you look at the ETG guidelines for Australia or in my hospital, we'd usually give her um, with some signs of sepsis. So she's moderately sick. We'd probably give her gentamicin to, uh, to cover potentially ESBLs or resistant gram negatives and just get really good, um, uh, some killing power while she's sick and also start her on IV ampicillin, which will cover some of the really sensitive wild type gram negatives and also cover enterococcus. Yep. So in my hospital, often people will just give keftriaxone, but the problem with that is it doesn't cover that gram positive bacteria that just eluded me, the enterococcus. So, so you tread carefully if you're treating with keftriaxone monotherapy, but, but I think that is in some of the guidelines. Is that right? It, it's given as a, an option if you can't give gentamicin. And, yeah, it's, it's not an unreasonable option because, you know, enterococcus infections, enterococcus isn't as uh, – we talked about it in episode one, but it's not as nasty a bug as some of, some of the other ones. So often you can afford to not treat it really aggressively really quickly. And the other problem with keftriaxin, of course, is it doesn't cover ESBL. Exactly. ESBL defined as resistance to keftriaxone. Mm-hmm. But go with your local guidelines. I think it's actually something we should emphasize before we get too into this, that, uh, that <laughs> most places will have local resistance patterns and, and their own local guidelines. Mm-hmm. So treat this as a, as a general guide. Yeah. So as, as we talked about, what if this patient, say, was from a nursing home, had an extensive medical history or had a history of e- extended spectrum beta-lactamases? Like what, what, what um, empiric antibiotic therapy would you want to give then? So while you're awaiting cultures, you could consider meropenem, but IV gentamicin would still be a, a solid option here. Yeah. 
And what about if the um, Darvo, if the patient had an IDC inside you and was from a nursing home? So some other risk factors for antibiotics and infections. An indwelling catheter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so indwelling catheter makes me think that maybe enterococcus is more likely because that's something that we've talked about before as being one of those sticky bugs that loves plastic. And as we said, uh, although it's gram positive, a lot of the a lot of the kind of beta lactams don't work, and so you, you have to use vancomycin. Um, so I'd, I'd consider vanc adding vanc cover. Yeah, so vanc will cover more enterococcus than ampicillin will because mm. we talked last episode enterococcus faecalis will. Um, uh, often be treatable with ampicillin, but Enterococcus faecium might need vancomycin. And Staph aureus is often a cause of IDC or catheter-related urinary tract infections. So if the patient had a history of MRSA, it'd be reasonable to cover with some vancomycin. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't often think of Staph aureus as a, as a UTI bug, but it can, yeah, you're right. Yeah, usually just in um, patients with catheters, very rare outside that. So Mrs. Berry, you give her ampicillin and gentamicin and you wait for your cultures. Six hours later, the gram stain comes back from the lab and they've got gram-negative bacilli. At this time, her hypertension has improved a little bit. It's come up to 105 and her um, tachycardia has settled to 100. So what do you think? Do you change antibiotics at this time, Beck? Uh... No, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> Oh, thinking of thinking of resistance patterns, uh, uh, sort of stewardship. Would you stop the ampicillin? Uh, look, you could consider stopping the ampicillin. Um, I think at this stage, the most important thing, and I guess the other thing to say here is, there's no totally wrong or totally right answers. This is just kind of a bit of a discussion and trying well, let's, to let's talk honest. about there's the thinking. Totally wrong answers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's totally wrong answers. I just give IV cranberry mm. juice. <laughs> so IV cranberry juice. So you switch that. You give her some um, ivermectin, um, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably reasonable to, at this stage, we think it's gram-negative bacilli. That's important for two reasons. The first is that gram-negative bacilli in the blood uh, it means the patient's got a pretty pretty severe infection. So you, you want to make sure you're covering her. Gentamicin's dosed daily and it's got really good gram-negative cover. So you can probably just hold off for now if the patient's clinically improving as long as they're on the gentamicin. And probably when that's done, you'll probably switch them over to keftriaxone, remembering that it won't cover ESBL if they don't continue to improve. So would you continue the ampicillin? Um, I'd probably stop it. I'd probably stop it. But, you know, six hours later, I'd... I'd probably um, before about 24 hours just because, you know, ampicillin is not very toxic anyway. So the next day, about 36 hours later, the gram-negative bacilli is cultured and it's identified as Klebsiella pneumoniae and clinically the patient's improving a lot. So we still don't have the sensitivities back. We, we started her on her first dose of keftriaxone this morning after the gent she got yesterday. We stopped the ampicillin. What, so just on the Keftrax, so now, do you think that's fine for now, Beck? I think it's I think it's fine for now. I'd like to see the sensitivities, but while we're waiting for those to come back, I think it's reasonable. Yeah. So I think it was reasonable. Unfortunately, the next day, the sensitivities come back and the Klebsiella pneumoniae is resistant to amoxicillin, resistant to augmentin, and resistant to Keftraxone. So it's an ESBL. 
Yeah. It's sensitive to gentamicin and meropenem and sensitive to ciprofloxacin. No so, more gent. Save her ears. Yeah, so we exactly. So we don't want to give her any more gentamicin because we don't want her to get a long course, but we can see that the keftriaxone that we switched her to probably isn't good enough. But I think that at the time, the decision Beck made was still very reasonable because clinically the patient was improving, which is the most important thing. So when a patient's looking well, remember, like, like this happened here, we can afford to have a little gap in our antibiotic coverage if things are going really well. So in this case now, if the patient was still really sick, then you'd consider something like meropenem um, uh, until things stabilise. But probably today or maybe the next day, if things were going well, you could switch her to oral ciprofloxacin to complete out a tail. And usually with gram-negative uh, bacilli in the blood infection, then we usually treat for about 10 to 14 days total, including the IV and the oral antibiotics. Mm. But unlike the gram-positive bacteremias, you don't need to have the bulk of that being IV. So you'll, you'll do a, a burst of IV for a few days and then drop down to... To oral and I, I love the expression the oral tail like you just said <laughs> so we give her so, so this lady's covered quite a few antibiotics there so we've we've given her the IV gentamicin and ampicillin when we just knew the clinical picture that she had a UTI and, and features of sepsis and then we've dropped down the ampicillin once we uh, once we knew that it was in fact gram negative and then we've switched her over from gentamicin to keftriaxone once we knew that it was Klebsiella. And then once we knew that resistance pattern, we changed her to meropenem, to which she was sensitive, stopping the gentamicin, even though that was sensitive because it's bad for her ears. And then we've stopped the IV antis altogether and given her a ciprofloxacin oral tail. So actually, Mrs. Berry has just covered all the antibiotics I've ever heard of. So uh, great case. Yeah. So... This is the optional part of the episode. And if you feel like you've had enough and you want to go um, have some ice cream, then you can go and have some ice cream. But if you feel like you just want a little bit more revision, then we can just talk through a couple of quick kind of empiric antibiotic regimens and how you escalate them. So these are kind of, this is kind of what I get asked most days as an ID reg when people call me. And they're kind of, if, if a patient's already on a particular set of antibiotics, what do you add? And you can think of it a little bit like antibiotic sepsis tetris so you're thinking about so when a patient's deteriorating and you need to broaden their antibiotics you should think about where the bugs could come from and then you think about the gaps in the current antibiotic therapy to plug them and once you identify the bug at the end our test sensitivities then usually you de-escalate to the more directed therapy that just hits the bug that you want to treat so First case, let's go a patient with UTI on keftriaxone that then deteriorates. Um, what would we think about covering Beck to try and, um, if a patient was deteriorating, we wanted to increase their antibiotic cover, but they were already on keftriaxone. What other groups would we think about? All right. So at the moment, the, the gaps in this game of Tetris are ESBL, extended spectrum beta-lactamases, because uh, they're not covered by keftriaxone. We're not covering gram-positive organisms particularly well, and we're not covering Pseudomonas. Yeah, so you could give them something like meropenem, which would cover their ESBL as well, and would also give them better anaerobe cover. And uh, if they had some risk factors, you could also give them vancomycin to cover staph infections. Mm. Mm. So specifically to cover MRSA. Yeah, yeah. 
and I guess enterococcus as well. If they've got an enterococcus faecium that's resistant to amp- ampicillin and you want to treat it. So next patient, Davo. So I've got a man who's had a uh, cholecystectomy two days ago, and now he's got a fever. He was He's only on kefazolin. They've left him on it since the operation two days ago, mm-hmm. um, which they probably shouldn't have. But anyway, <laughs> you know he's on that. So what, what bugs would you think about for a post-cholecystectomy with a fever and no other focal symptoms? And then what um, antibiotics would you think about? So I'd be pretty worried about gram negatives because kefazolin doesn't really cover that at all. And particularly given, you know, it's abdominal surgery, there's probably some gram negatives floating around. Keftriaxone and augmentin would kind of provide moderate cover for, for gram negatives. Um, I'd also be kind of thinking about anaerobes. You know, I might think about some metronidazole as well. And then if, I'm, if, if this patient's really sick, and I don't think I can afford to have a period without potential ESBL cover, I might consider something like meropenem. Yeah. So kefazolin doesn't cover many anaerobes. It only covers those really sensitive ones that don't have the um, the kefalosporinases that we talked about, the wild types. So, yeah, you want to think about gram-negative cover. So something like um, potentially the, the two main options we'd use in my hospital would either be keftaraxone, metronidazole, so keftaraxone for the gram-negatives, metronidazole for the anaerobes, mm-hmm. or we'd use tazacin would probably be the most two most common. And if the patient had a really resistant history of antibiotics, then we might use meropenem. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Next one. So, Beck, you've got your perioper operage and you're seeing a patient who's actually, I don't know why they're not under you. If <laughs> they've, got a, they've come in with a community-acquired pneumonia mm-hmm. and they're on keftaraxone, and uh, you can't remember, your, your GC is 14. You can't remember which team you're on today. But, um, <laughs> someone asked you in the corridor, what should you do to their antibiotics? They're getting worse. They're not getting better. And they're just on keftaraxone. What, what group of bugs would you think about and what antibiotics might you think about giving? Yeah, so community-acquired pneumonia on keftaraxone, I'm thinking that we're not covering some of those atypical organisms with all the pitfalls we talked about earlier about calling things atypical. So I'd be considering something like azithromycin or doxycycline. We're not covering, again, the ESBLs, so thinking about whether tazacin or kefepime need to be considered also to cover anaerobic pathogens. Yeah, so... If, if a patient's from the community and they're pretty well, normal 75-year-old, I, I think they're very unlikely to have a gram-negative pneumonia. Usually, it'd be really important to cover them for atypicals. So something like azithromycin would be really useful. But we'd, we'd unless a patient had been through ICU or maybe had had a long lie or very, you know, extremely poor oral hygiene, so they'd got some gut bugs into their lungs, we wouldn't usually worry too much about ESBLs, but you'll see patients often escalated straight to meropenem for a community-acquired pneumonia, but usually it's yeah, not really adding that much. Mm. Any role for metronidazole for kind of aspiration pneumonia? Well, that's a bit out of fashion now. Yeah, it's not recommended. There's, I think it's only 1% or 2% uh, mm. caused by anaerobic infections. And mm. as you remember from earlier, most of those gut bugs, most of those anaerobes in the mouth that we talked about are actually sensitive to a lot of the other penicillins and kephalosporins. Yeah. So we don't really need metronidazole anyway. So it's not really recommended very often. Okay. Um, but you'll see some people still use it. It's not, it's not totally unreasonable. 
so next I've got a patient who's immunocompromised. I've got a 74-year-old um, man with relapse multiple myeloma who is post bone marrow transplant and he's already on tazacin after fevers for the last 48 hours. And today he gets even worse. So this is a bit of an advanced question, but I, I just want to go through the process again. So if we think about this man's already on tazacin, we're not sure where the infection's coming from, then we want to think about the gaps in that. So the things that tazacin doesn't cover, things like MRSA, so you could add vancomycin to cover for that, particularly if he's got lots of lines in, like central lines for his chemotherapy that might, or for his um, bone marrow transplant. Mm. He might have a resistant ESBL, so you might um, give him some meropenem, or he could have some kind of hidden atypical infection with, with the atypical bugs that we talked about. So you might give him something like azithromycin. And obviously you'd culture everything and take a very careful history and exam. So hopefully you're not just treating him as a deterioration and you've actually got something to go by to try and work out which kinds of bugs you'd be most worried about. An idea Reg can dream having actual macro to work off. But, uh... <laughs> we probably should have mentioned this, uh, this earlier, but a lot of the time people talk about a septic screen. And so generally at bare minimum, that refers to doing blood cultures, a chest X-ray and a urine MCS, but depending on, the, the clinical picture, you'd be adding cultures of whatever whatever else. So that might include a lumbar puncture or a skin swab or a sputum. Yeah. And can I, can so, I ask as well, just because I think of meropenem as just covering everything, does it cover the atypicals or would you add meropenem and, uh, and no, then also add azithromycin? No, it doesn't cover all the atypicals. That's, no. a, good, that's a good thing to know. Okay, cool. So gaps in meropenem, atypicals, MRSA, uh, VRE, which uh, vancomycin resistant enterococcus, which we talked about last episode, mm -hmm. and some of the other rare bugs, things like stenotrophomonas. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Next one. So the next case, you've got a 45-year-old man who is swimming in a dirty billabong, and he's now got a, he cut himself on a rock underneath the water, and now he's got a uh, foot infection. His GP started him on ciprofloxacin and he's now getting worse. So what antibiotic cover would you want, Beck? So he's a jolly swagman camped by the billabong on ciprofloxacin, which sounds reasonable to cover pseudomonas, but it's not going to be covering many of the other things that could be infecting his wound. So I'm thinking that there's a big gap with no gram-positive cover and no anaerobic cover. So to address those gaps, I guess gram-positives is something like flucloxacillin would cover a lot of those kind of skin microbes. Vancomycin, thinking about enterococcus or resistant staphylococcus aureus, so MRSA. Anaerobic cover, metronidazole would be an option. So I think it would depend a lot on the clinical context, but I'd probably be, be giving flucloxacillin and metronidazole or vanc if they were much sicker. Yeah, I think that sounds really reasonable. If they were sick, maybe Vank and metronidazole, um, given that it's not responding to Cipro. And if they weren't sick and just in the community, you could try clindamycin because if you're a, water, a wound associated with water has a few classic bugs associated with it that we haven't talked about yet, but Pseudomonas is the key one, but also Aeromonas or um, Vibrio vulnificus if you're trying to get extra points on MCQs. But gram positives live on the skin, so be as Beck said, really important to cover some gram positives as well mm. and some anaerobes. And, and if they went for sick, you could probably cover clindamycin because you've already got 
gram-negative cover with the ciprofloxacin, and the clindamycin would have gram-positive cover and anaerobe cover. Mm. And to be honest, I was reading what's on the screen, but in practice, uh, ciproclindo is, is a pretty classic regime that I use a lot for wounds. It covers pretty much all the, all the things you want to hit. And it's oral. Yeah, which is super useful. So that's, that's it for the podcast. I, I think this is the most overtime we've ever gone, so I hope it wasn't <laughs> too painful. But I just, as a final thing, you know, it, it takes a long time to learn all these different bugs and these different antibiotics, but something really useful to do is whenever you look something up on ETG or Sanford and try and work out what antibiotic regimen to give, first guess your own regimen, look at the regimen that they recommend, and then try and deconstruct and look at each part. You know, they're giving vancomycin. What's the vancomycin for? They're worried about MRSA. They're giving ampicillin. Is that for the enterococcus? And as you do that and try and understand the process, you can come up with your own empiric antibiotic regimens and, or failing that you've already given them something really safe. So it doesn't matter. You've done all right. Well, for, the, for, for the people for that have waited girls. this long, Scott's number is 04. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you really need to know. Make, right. make good friends with an ID reg for sure. Thank Very you useful. so much, Scott. That was an excellent overview. And uh, I've certainly Fantastic. learned a lot, and I think that I'm going to be listening back to this myself. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks, guys. Um, see you soon. And see you, Zala. <laughs>